Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. In the last series of the podcast, I talked to Transform MFL about why we need a revolution in our languages curriculum in school. This is partly because the internet has happened in the time since GCSE languages were conceived and the world has changed pretty rapidly over the last 30 years. Today, I'm excited to welcome Yin Yin Lu, a doctor of the internet, to the podcast. She is calling for a communication revolution because the way we communicate has not evolved in step with the technological revolution that is unfolding before our eyes. It's time to talk about talking for the 21st century, and I wonder if this will also help us reimagine our foreign languages curriculum too. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Hi, Kate. I am so tremendously thrilled to be here, and I, I think the stars have aligned recently to bring us together to this moment. Well, yeah, I'm very excited as well. We, we met on Twitter, didn't we, which is a very 21st century way to make new friends and find like-minded people. Um, why do you call yourself a rhetoric doctor and doctor of the internet, Yin? What is that exactly? That is a great first question. I think also the comment you made about us meeting on Twitter, on the internet, and developing our connection in that medium is also so relevant for a conversation. Um, I think before I explain uh, why I call myself a rhetoric doctor, just to add a slight disclaimer or just more context, uh, which is that firstly, I, I do personally like to define myself through phrases and words that perhaps don't yet exist. Um, and that's because I feel like the words and phrases that do exist don't communicate well enough what I value and what I do. So I like to invent uh, new words, but just also say that it's not completely making words up from scratch. It's more repurposing words and concepts that do exist because otherwise you know, there's no frame of reference for my audience. So um, basically the two core reasons I call myself a rhetoric doctor, this kind of phrase that I'm repurposing and, and using uh, in a new way, is that the first reason is that um, I literally do have a PhD in online rhetoric. Um, I, I did my PhD at the Oxford Internet Institute, it's called a DPhil in Oxford, but uh, I prefer PhD, it's, it's more known as a term. Um, and, and it was basically on the rhetoric and resonance of Brexit tweets, the communication and information uh, context uh, of new media. So literally speaking, got a PhD in rhetoric, but the other reason I think which is equally important is that looking at the word doctor, you know, doctors fix broken bodies, broken bones, they, they heal and cure people. And I think that rhetoric has a bit of a bad rap these days in that, you know, when you think about rhetoric, negative words come, in, come to mind immediately. Look at media headlines, you know, divisive rhetoric, fear rhetoric political rhetoric. So one of my kind of life goals, as it were, is to shift the semantic field of the word rhetoric to doctor it up in a, in a way and restore it to its former reputation to bring back its glory and to make Aristotle himself proud. That's awesome. What about the um, doctor of the internet? Yes. So um, just to clarify a bit more about the context there. So the reason I did a PhD at the Oxford Internet Institute is it truly, I think, was the best place for me to spend a good four and a half years thinking about the impact that the internet has had on both society at large and communication and how we talk and socialize and behave 
um, on a more uh, micro level. So, and the reason that that's the case is that while it is certainly a faculty in an academic context, it has very strong connections to both the tech sector, um, especially companies like Google, uh, Facebook, um, and also to policy. Um, so we have a lot of leading thinkers um, in, in regulation uh, of data and, and privacy as well, um, helping kind of influence policy sitting at the Internet Institute. And also um, it's, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, interdisciplinary um, in that you've got everything from art history to uh, computer science and physics and everything in between. So it truly was, I think, the best place to take a break, as it were, from, from the hectic work cycle of, of the private sector where I was previously and truly think about how the internet has shaped how we speak and behave. Well, that's amazing. It really is multidimensional then when you're looking at studying the internet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to quickly add a detail, if I may, um, all of the new students, masters and PhD alike, entering the institute, we have to take a certain set of core courses. And this spans communication theory, uh, statistics, uh, Python as well, uh, and a course on regulation of the internet. So just to say that I think any student uh, in any course, whether it's at a university or at a school, really does need to have both those quantitative and qualitative skills to fully understand the internet and how we communicate. So humans talk, that's just how people have evolved and that's just what people do. But how has communication changed since the internet happened? Wow, another great question. Um, top level summary, I would say that communication has become at once really fast, really, really, really fast, uh, in that you know we are faced with literally never ending streams or feeds, as they call them, uh, of content from, from quite a few different sources. I mean, look at you know Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, to name but a few. Um, YouTube as well with autoplay. It's just endless and it's fast because you're encouraged to send messages very quickly and to reply very quickly. I think quite a few of us, myself definitely included, feel a bit stressed out and guilty all the time because if you look at you know, your mobile phone, it quantifies unread messages on all these different apps and platforms, including email and, and you know, text message. And it's almost impossible to like get everything down to zero. Um, and the quantification ties into the speed, if that makes sense. Um, the other major factor, of course, is that now communication, I would say, is really complicated. It's insanely complicated. And, and that's because we're not really consuming content directly from the source anymore. Um, it's most often from an aggregator or a different platform, like social media, for example, or an app that personalizes news for you, for example. And so there's all these different contexts. And each context as well has its own unique style, right? So LinkedIn is so different to WhatsApp or Twitter or TikTok. So, you know, we have to communicate in different ways on these different platforms, as well as we consume the information as well. This is two-way street. We create and we consume on these different contexts, these different platforms. But no one really teaches us how to communicate in each of these contexts. I don't think any school curriculum goes, okay, this is how you write a LinkedIn message versus a Facebook message, right? Um, and in fact, a lot of mobile phones are still banned in, in, in some school districts. Uh, and so it, it, I think there's an education gap there. How do you teach people to communicate in these wild, unknown contexts uh, to school curricula? And, and finally, if I end on a couple of other 
broad things. Number one, communication is more dangerous now as well. Um, one thing is nothing is deleted. So if you make a mistake, especially if you're famous, uh-oh, uh, the trolls are going to be after you. <laughs> um, so basically publicity is almost, it's always a double-edged sword now because there, there will always be people who disagree with you if you're famous enough to get something said that's loud enough, right? And then um, on a more positive broad note, I would say communication has become a lot more creative and fun and playful. And I love to look at TikTok as an example of this because it's very designed and encourages people to remix and to combine music and video and text. It's in a very exuberant celebration of human talent. That's absolutely fascinating. It sounds, to carry on your kind of food metaphor, you know, you mentioned we have feeds and it's almost like we're having an overdose of fast food in my mind that some of the things we're consuming are not necessarily healthy or they've gone through too many uh, modifications to get to us. What do you think about that idea? Yes, I completely agree. I love the food metaphor, the junk food metaphor in particular. I always call Instagram, uh, basically, it, it's sugar um, because it gives us this sugar high, this rush of energy and excitement due to all the beautiful filtered pictures and videos that we see, right? But that positivity is quite short-lived and it comes crashing down when you confront you know, the bleak reality of our lives. We're not living filtered existences in real life. And so if we're confronted with that on these online screens, um, sure, it makes us feel happy in the moment, but then it makes us feel deeply unhappy as a contrast to the happiness that we can't really obtain, if that makes sense. So absolutely. And I think, you know, fundamentally, as I mentioned earlier, the speeding up and slowing down element is crucial here. We, we shouldn't, I mean, fast communication, especially in crisis contexts, right? Like breaking news, that is so important. And I completely agree, for example, that Twitter is excellent in that context. Um, but in general, you know, not every communication has to be fast. And so we do have to slow down, eat more slowly, and, and process things and think more slowly and, and even speak more slowly in order to truly communicate in a healthy way. So is communication changing more rapidly because of this tech? If we look back over 20,000 years, say, of human evolution, has the last 30 years shown everything speeding up at a certain rate because of technology? Yes, yes, absolutely yes. Um, couldn't agree more, Kate. I would even say, uh, to leverage a 21st century metaphor, um, that basically we're like a Tesla in ludicrous mode, right? So zero to 60 in three seconds, although now Elon Musk is planning this rocket booster upgrade. So now it's going to be zero to 60 in one second in, in the next version of the Tesla. Oh my goodness, everything's about speed. And sadly, education and the law and even our human brains cannot keep up with how quickly we're moving because of tech. And we've made the tech. This is super ironic, isn't it? Um, I guess one other analogy I'll make here as well is that this is to do with the brain aspect of it, which I think is quite fundamental. Um, the way the internet has been designed, it triggers the amygdala response, the fight or flight response, the quite immediate kind of panic, fear uh, response um, because of you know, what we're seeing and, and how quickly we're thinking and processing or not really processing. And what we actually need is more of a cerebellum response. And the cerebellum is an often overlooked 
area of the brain. Much research though, um, and it's an incredible little dense ball above the spinal cord at the base of the brain, very small in size, but very densely packed. And what it does is it regulates not just physical movements, but also our emotions. Unfortunately, the way the internet is designed and these infinite feeds and the fast paced nature, all these building numbers, it definitely primes us to be more amygdala than cerebellum, right? So we need more cerebellum. Um, I would also mention very quickly another recent development that's happened in the past few weeks, which is that OpenAI has developed this new artificial intelligence API, this model, machine learning model, that can generate text. It's called GPT-3, GPT-3. And this is terrifying. I think every student and teacher in the land needs to know about this right now. Because if you think about it, for, for, for the vast majority of the past uh, few decades, um, what machine learning in language has done is translation, like Google Translate, which has its own pros and cons, but you know, more pros and cons, one might argue, and also classification or predictions. You can say that, for example, an email is spam or not spam, right? So these, these tasks are more okay or less prone to be exploited. But now we have an API that can generate and create text, which means that one of the skills that we think is most critical to human, to human uh, skills and, and cannot be replaced by machines, creativity, is now being replaced to some degree by an algorithm. I mean, it's to the point where you give this algorithm one or two sentences and it can generate an entire cover letter for you an entire essay for you, a letter to a friend for you, based upon a couple of sentences, and it reads like a human wrote it. And if you think again about what's been happening in, these, in the tech world, look at Google um, and its many products, the autocomplete of messages in email. Look at LinkedIn, suggesting responses. It's already happening that machines are taking over the creation of, of our personal uh, language. And now imagine if Google or LinkedIn leveraged this new API, GPT-3. Oh my goodness. Like think about the impact of that. And think about how the regulators are like, they are not in the room. They have no idea what's going on. They're not equipped to figure out how to control all this, right? And it's obviously an opt-out situation, not opt-in in terms of the autocomplete. So yeah. There's, there's a lot of uh, rapid change happening, to summarise. It can sound quite terrifying when you, put it, when you put it like that, because the people who are sort of my age and above, who are nominally in charge of regulating things, so, you know, if you're a, an adult, um, you, you kind of remember this time of writing letters to pen friends, and it's an amusing story, but when I was about 18 years old, my friend at the time said... Um, I'll send you a text message. Um, and I had no idea what he meant. He's, you know, we'd been at a band practice or something. And he said, I'll send you a text to let you know what time I'll be at the pub. And I didn't know what he meant. I had to ask somebody, what did, what did Alex mean when he said he was going to send me a text? And if there are any teenagers listening now, they'll just think that's absolutely ridiculous because, you know, texting is as natural to us as anything else. But in 1998, 1999, when I was at the beginning of university, that was a really cool new thing to do. And I didn't even realize it cost money. So at the time 
I had made a new friend who lived in the next building along to me in my college and I kept texting her with very inconsequential small details like I'll be downstairs in five minutes and then she would text back yep cool see you there and then I would text back okay and it cost 50p a go which you know I was horrified when I got the phone bill um, but it's just it just showed like how innocently I was using that new technology and I had no concept really how um, how to do it and I feel like we're kind of speeding away from my parents' generation, and they're in their 70s now, in our communication styles and habits. I mean, are we just accelerating it to a point where the, you know, the grown-ups, whoever, whatever we classify the grown-ups to be, can't keep in touch with what the, the young people are finding um, more and more in everyday life? What do you think? Wow, Kate, I absolutely loved everything you've just said. So much to respond to. I mean, first of all, I also wrote letters to pen friends, like 10, 15 pages of handwriting until about the year 2008. I think that was my, my last letter was sent to a friend in Singapore. Um, and coincidentally, that's when I really began using Facebook uh, as a platform. So I don't think it's a coincidence, right? Uh, and also text messages, of course, came up uh, definitely way before 2008. Um, I think what you just mentioned about the cost as well is so, so relevant that when there was that financial penalty, I think it certainly slowed us down in a way, right? Because once you saw the phone bill, you were just like, oh my goodness, okay, I need to be very careful about, you know, what I say and max, I mean, I used to basically maximize every single character <laughs> in my text messages to make sure I didn't go over the, or was it a hundred character limit, whatever it was, I was at the 99 and I would write all the way up to that. I wouldn't even send a, hello, how are you? Cause it wasn't like worthy of a 50 P text. So that makes sense. But now that everything is obviously data as in it's Wi-Fi, um, there's no penalty. I think that's actually contributed in a way to the speed discussed in earlier um, questions. And I do agree. Uh, definitely, this generational gap that's coming up at the moment, um, it's its not black and white. I mean, I know so many people, including my own parents, who are very um, good at uh, messaging online via different chat uh, platforms. So it's not as black and white as, you know, anyone above a certain age can't do it versus below a certain age can do it. But I do think that we can draw a couple of conclusions, uh, one of which is that we are speaking in many ways a different language or a different dialect from that spoken by our parents. Um, on a very kind of superficial level, this is due to slang, to using hashtags, even in everyday conversation, LOL, R-O-F-L, X-D. So yes, there is a vocabulary thing. But of course, our parents are clever enough to pick these things up very quickly. The more um, interesting aspect of this dialect shift is to me about design, which is intuitive to uh, the younger generation, I would say, as it's built by people who are a bit younger, let's say, right? And it's unintuitive to the um, older generation. So for example, even how to navigate a smartphone for the first time. I remember my, my partner, um, his parents, who are very, very intelligent people, when they first got a smartphone a couple of months ago, they asked him all the time for how to make a call, how to download an app, um, how to use Google Maps. They, they couldn't navigate the actual design of the phone. And that is communication, right? The way you put things onto a, onto a device, right? So that's a bit perplexing to me. And also, you know, cookies, what are cookies? Um, how is data stored? That 
divide in understanding, I think, is is quite um, a difficult one to transcend. That's far more difficult than learning what LOL means. And I think another thing that's happening, of course, is that we're not just speaking to people anymore, right? We're speaking to machines. We're speaking to our phones, to our light bulbs, to refrigerators, to televisions, right? Um, the smart devices, that's happening. Internet of things, come on, that, that's inevitable. Um, now, talking to your microwave or toaster is not just the thing that a nutcase would do. It's something that most of us will do in the near future. Um, and the scary thing in that element, though, for that domain of talking to devices is that it's so gendered. I mean, if you think about it, most code, I've heard somewhere like 96% of code allegedly is written by, by men, even in this day. Um, but think about, you know, Siri and Alexa, like it kind of makes sense if men are writing it, it would give female names to these, to these uh, voice assistants, right? And so we're training an entire generation of people to scream, Siri, Alexa, what's, you know, the answer to the meaning of life? Um, to scream female names and to expect a response, like, Think about the impact that's having, very subtle, but also not so subtle, right? And so that gender element and speaking to devices is yet another domain that I think is speeding away from our, our control. You know, I hadn't even thought about that and it is quite scary. We don't use Alexa that much. We have got a speaker in our house where you can ask Alexa things, but I am, you know, a little bit sceptical about sending off my music preferences or you know, my, you know, times I turn the lights on and off in my house. I don't know who's going to have that information. But yes, the children think it's really funny. So I've got three children under the age of 10 and they think it's really amusing to get Alexa running around after them, essentially, and finding information. And I spend a reasonable amount of time saying, let's get the encyclopedia and look that up and trying to teach them you know, what you might call in inverted commas, the traditional method of looking something up. But it's actually very tricky because it's so much more convenient to look something up on Google than it is to get five volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica down to try and sift through. So the convenience aspect of it is, you know, it's helpful, but it's also slightly worrying, I think. And like you say, if you're training up this younger generation to expect women to dig around the internet and find the answers for them or do their beck and call it's yeah perhaps a perhaps a real issue for feminism that I hadn't considered at all so yeah wow Ian let's have a talk now about social media since that is how we met um, and we met because somebody posted an article that you had written on Twitter and I read it I really enjoyed it and then through the wonder of Twitter I could send you a message and say I'd really enjoyed your article on Medium and then that's how we connected and got chatting. Um, how is social media affecting the way we communicate? Tell us the good and the bad. Wow, okay. Um, I guess I'll start with the good because, again, we I wouldn't be sitting here at my dining room table talking to you on this podcast if it weren't for Twitter. So as much as I might critique Twitter, I will say the way it's allowed people to find like-minded individuals uh, at such a, you know, a fast, it's, it's, it's increased trust in a way. It's sped up how, how long it takes to get to know someone, which is in a way a positive externality of this general speeding up that I was talking about earlier being negative, but actually speeding up trust 
can be positive and that we can, you know, connect in about, I think we, we had maybe a couple of tweets uh, as an exchange before we agreed upon uh, doing this, which is insane as we've never met. Um, we don't really, I, I don't think I know anyone who knows you. I probably do, but I wasn't aware of that, right? So just the fact that through a couple of tweets, I've ended up here is remarkable. Um, so I guess to summarize that point, the connecting with like-minded individuals and finding your, your tribe, everyone likes to talk about tribes, um, that element of social media is absolutely incredible. And there's so many apps and platforms now. And so, of course, the platform helps because Twitter is known for, I suppose, uh, journalists are on Twitter, um, academics are on Twitter, people in the tech world are on Twitter. Um, and so you kind of associate these different platforms with different interest groups. So it's quite easy then to figure out, okay, if I want to meet people who like cycling, I will go to, I don't know, Meetup and, and find some cycling groups, right? It's not really been easier to make friends, I would say. Making friends um, is, is the best, well, the, the most positive uh, benefit, in my view, of, of social media. Friends and professional connections uh, that can benefit uh, both you and the person that you're meeting. Uh, the negative aspect of it, of course, uh, not to repeat things I said before, um, th there's a mental health dimension that definitely has to be mentioned. I'm not gonna stress it too much, um, but as there's been so much written on this, I would say we can't just go out and say, social media is mentally damaging for children and teenagers and adults. That's not fair. That is absolutely not fair. Um, it's, it's way too nuanced to be a black and white scenario as you know, this is good and this is bad, right? But to, to, but to kind of highlight um, the negative ways in which social media can influence our mental health. I think one way is that, as I mentioned earlier, communication is quite dangerous online. And if you say something a bit too provocative and it ends up in the wrong hands, you might end up with death threats or at least people harassing you. Um, in my PhD research, I interviewed over 20 campaigners who, um, were actively using Twitter for personal and professional reasons in the Brexit campaign to vote for Remain or Leave. And a few of my interviewees told me that they actually decided to take a full break for a couple of years um, from Twitter because of the mental health issue and the harassment and the bullying. So we have to be very, very, very careful of what we say. And while it can make us more authentic and sincere. We can't be too authentic and sincere because there will always be people out there who are waiting and lurking uh, and, and, and will manipulate what we say out of context and use it against us. And that's because at the end of the day, social media is two-dimensional. It's not three-dimensional. So you can quite easily construe someone to be what you think they are because you're not truly knowing them in real life, in person, and also because you can be anonymous so easily. So you can kind of say things and be protected from negative consequences if you're hiding who you really are. So you're more prone to say things triggered by your amygdala response as opposed to the cerebellum response, return to the metaphor I used earlier. Thank you. That's so fascinating. I think it's a really good way to round up the first half of our conversation because 
basically what we're saying is that communication has rapidly sped up in the last 30 years and we are now kind of in a bit of unknown uncharted territory aren't we but our brains have not necessarily caught up with the technological advances so sometimes we behave like normal human patterns of behavior but actually the technology is a whole new world is that is that a reasonable summation of what we've been saying yes absolutely i think i would i would use the word speed for if you want a one sentence sort of summary of the impact of the internet on communication and i think fundamentally while education and the law have a lot of work to do to catch up the the my biggest concern is with human biology so you've captured it so well by emphasizing the brain dimension of it um that is i would say the most difficult dimension as well right because you know it's social media and the internet it's um almost taking advantage of the darkest recesses of human nature i hate to sound like i'm you know hyperbolizing i'm not i think it has though right i i'm not i i mean that seriously at the same time to end on a positive note the creativity and the potential and the sheer joy and exuberance it has also unleashed is equally good right so there's a lot of hope i think that's it there's a lot of hope but we also need to be informed and to learn a lot more about how we interact with each other on these platforms and across the internet as a whole so thank you yin we'll continue our conversation in part 2 it's been great to chat to you today and i will speak to you again soon thank you so much kate until next time